This episode is coming to you in early April, and I am so happy to share that it is officially springtime here in Philadelphia. There are pretty flowers springing up on the trees on my block, I've retired my puffy winter coat to the back of the closet in the guest room, and going outside has gone from feeling like some sort of arctic expedition to feeling like a lovely leisurely stroll. After the year that we have all had, spring has never been sweeter. This past winter was pretty rough, but it had absolutely nothing on the winter of 1880 to 1881 as described in The Long Winter by Laura Ingalls Wilder. As you can probably guess from the title, this sixth book in the Little House on the Prairie series tells the story of an especially miserable winter season in the life of the Ingalls family, who at this point is living in the Dakota Territory. The Long Winter was published in 1940, and we are talking all about it on today's episode of the SSR Podcast. Episode 140 begins with a brief discussion about my guest's unique path to the Little House series, followed by a frank conversation about the racist underpinnings of these books. We come back to these issues over and over again throughout the episode as we wrestle with one of SSR's core questions. How do we deal with the fact that books and other pieces of content that we once loved actually represent some pretty horrific moments in our real history? On this episode, you will also hear my guest and I try to reconcile some very complicated feelings about Pa, discuss the parallels between a long winter like the one Laura and her family experienced in 1880 and pandemic life, and observe some subtle references to mental health in the long winter. Oh, and we managed to find connections between this book and Game of Thrones, Day in the Life vlogs, and meditation. You don't want to miss it. I'm thrilled to introduce you to today's guest, Lauren Tarshis. Lauren's New York Times bestselling I Survived series, which has over 34 million copies in print, no big deal, tells stories of young people and their resilience and strength in the midst of unimaginable disasters and times of turmoil. She has brought her signature warmth and exhaustive research to topics such as the Battle of D-Day, the American Revolution, Hurricane Katrina, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and other world events. Lauren lives in Connecticut with her family and can be found online at laurentarshis.com. Her most recent novel, I Survived the Nazi Invasion 1944, went on sale on February 2nd, 2021. If I had to sum up my experience recording this episode with Lauren in just one word, that word would be delightful, and I just know that you are going to love this conversation. If you're not already following SSR on social media, you might want to start because I have a feeling you're going to love what's happening there too. Check us out at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. If, once you get into this episode, you are loving what you're hearing, it would mean so much to me if you would take a screenshot of it and post that screenshot to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me at SSRPod so I can see. You can also help me spread the word about SSR by leaving a 5-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or by sharing the podcast with the bookworms and nostalgia lovers in your life. Few things make me happier than welcoming new people into the SSR family. The more, the merrier. You can take an even more active role in supporting the podcast by joining SSR's Patreon community. With Patreon, you can support independent creators and the things they make for just a few dollars a month in exchange for exclusive rewards. You can come on board as an SSR Patreon patron for as little as $1 per month. SSR Patreon perks include input on book selection, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, Patreon parties, monthly video reading recaps, SSR merch, and more. Trust me, it is a lot of fun, and I would love to share these perks with you. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. Thank you so much to all of the patrons tuning into this episode. I would also like to take a moment to say a big thank you to everyone out there who is already participating in the brand new SSR book club. The book club just launched last week and our April selections are The Giver and You Should See Me in a Crown. It's free to join the book club and the amazing leaders who have volunteered to help me put all of this together have so many awesome things planned for the next few months. We would absolutely love to have you. Learn more at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or by tapping the link in SSR's Instagram bio. As always, I would love to give a shout out to my friends at Libro FM, who give us the opportunity to support independent bookstores when we shop for audiobooks. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. 
Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. I'm thrilled to be here with you. We've already had such a nice chat off mic, (laughs) and I'm just very excited to continue talking to you. I am too. I hope we have many hours. I know. Can this just go on for a while? <laughs> Listeners, are you ready to like buckle in for, for maybe like three to four hours? The totally. longest SSR episode ever? I'm sure. They're just they're <laughs> just braced for it. <laughs> they should be. They don't know it's about to happen. So I learned something kind of interesting in preparing for this episode. We're talking about The Long Winter, which is the sixth book in the Little House on the Prairie series. I don't think I realized that this book is like potentially the favorite of so many people in the series. Am I the only one who's new to that party? I think that there's what I think is people learn about the series is that it's people are obsessed with it. And from the outside, it seems like it's this large body of work, but there are definitely books that really stand out. And The Long Winter, I think I've, you know, I've read all of them multiple times as an adult, you know, I didn't read them as kids. And it's really a beautifully, I mean, there are problems with it, which we will discuss, but it's, it's such a beautifully, it's, it's a riveting beautifully crafted book. I mean, I'm curious to hear what you think of it. So yes, it's totally the fan favorite. And I think everyone has their own little scene that they love. So it is, um, I think it definitely is the standout. Yeah, because I always think about just Little House on the Prairie, which I believe is the third book in the series. And we did cover that book on the podcast all the way back in 2018. So it's been a while. Um, And as I mentioned to followers on my Instagram a couple of weeks ago, I'm really excited to dig back into this series almost three years later because at that time, I didn't have some of the vocabulary that I think I have now to tackle some of the dicier, more problematic elements of this series, um, which as you mentioned, we'll talk about because this is not a perfect series and it's it's very complicated in the context of American literature, especially American children's literature. And I was very nervous when we covered that book in 2018 because it was probably the first book that I brought into the podcast knowing that I was going to have to talk about things like race and racism. So I feel... Three years later, while I, like everybody else, still have so much to learn, and like I feel like I've developed a different kind of vocabulary, and I think together we're going to be able to tackle all kinds of angles on this book. But before we do that, I would love to hear from you. So you mentioned that you did not read these books when you were growing up. How did you come to them as an adult, and why was this the one that you wanted to talk about today? Well, it was interesting because when I was first invited to be on this wonderful podcast, and I was told, you know, choose your favorite book from when you were growing up, and I really got, um, I kind of panicked because I didn't read as a child. Um, I really could not, you know, I had reading struggles, and I truly did not read a children's book. And it wasn't until I was about 30 years old when I was forced to take a job. I've been at Scholastic for many years, and I was really like my my boss really wanted me to take the job as editor of StoryWorks, which is our elementary, you know, kind of New Yorker for third, fourth, and fifth graders at the time. And I didn't want to do it. And I said, I can't because I've never read any children's books. And he said, well, why don't you just go read them? So I, w- I went on this binge over a summer um, where I would go to the library here in my town in Connecticut with this old canvas bag and the librarian whose name was Miss Kitty, quite legendary, I love her. <laughs> and just tossed like kind of throwing them behind into my bag and I would like catch them. She helped me, you know, really build my foundation. So I discovered this book, you know, that series was part of that, that introduction to children's literature. And I really had no idea, you know, so I was, that series is particularly special to me because I feel it inaugurated me in some way. And and that whole period of of reading and falling in love with those books was what inspired me to try to learn how to write a book on my own. That touches my heart. That's so special. So do you, I know it can be hard to remember reading experiences, especially because now you've read so many books of all kinds. Do you remember at all, like, did it meet your expectations as a series? What did you think you were getting into? And then kind of what did you get out of that first experience with Little House? Well, 
I had always loved this, you know, the TV show, of course, and um, I've always been fascinated by that sort of and, and the prairie, you know, the, these sort of memoirs. I have a whole collection upstairs. There was a time in my life when I was very drawn to um, women's female, you know, women who had settled on the prairie. And there's a whole genre of these, you know, these narratives. And it's more complicated now, again, because as you said before, that whole period, it it was so romanticized and this notion of like American exceptionalism and the settlers and all of that has become, you know, so complicated. And of course, now we realize what happened in order for those settlers to be there. The genocide and the even the word settler is not a generic term. Westward expansion, all of those words have changed in terms of their, you know, the nuance, what those really mean. So I, I have to actually... I was reading these at a more innocent time, you know, I'm old. So this was, you know, 25 years ago when I, when I first started reading these. And so I was still very much, I think, enamored and captivated by the mythology of the American, the, the American West as in, and so to answer your question, I think that these books to me embodied that. And I, and I knew nothing about them. I really didn't, except for the show. What happens to a lot of people who fall in love with the Little House series, then you go down the rabbit hole of learning everything about the true story of Laura and her family, which is highly, really complicated. There's some wonderful scholarly works about it. And there's just endless tributaries that you can go down. So I think that what I love about The Long Winter most of all is even in, in its complexity, there are so many, it, it's, there are so many, there are so many entry points for discussion. And some of those discussions are really hard and painful. Also, I just think it's a, it's a, it's beautiful writing. Some of the, I, I bent some pages to share with you. I was curious about your favorites. Yeah, no, I, I echo everything that you said. It's interesting because I actually recorded a few days ago, a bonus episode for our Patreon community about the Little House TV show. And I decided to do that because I was reading this book and I just kind of wanted to go back to it because I grew up watching the show and my parents bought me like the box set of all of the VHS tapes. And um, so I watched the pilot episode, which is like a, a two hour movie or the equivalent of that. And so um, I feel like I've sort of been in some version of that rabbit hole over the last couple of days, which has been interesting. Also processing like everything that I've learned and trying to figure out how to reconcile the romanticization that even I perceived when I was a kid immersed in this world with what I know to be true now as I take in this pop culture and prepare to have conversations like this one. So I think before we get into all of the wonderful things about this book, I do just want to take a moment up front to once again acknowledge plain and simple the issues with The Little House on the Prairie series because I think it's important, of course, to like set up the context for this and to just lay the groundwork that we like, we have some work to do as a country on like how we are presenting these kinds of stories. So I'll share kind of my moment here and then I'd love to have you jump in. I think that generally speaking, where we need to be careful with a series like Little House on the Prairie is that it makes heroes of white families, white men in particular, really, um, who played a role knowingly in eradicating and killing and taking land and homes and space away from indigenous Native American people who were here first. And while there is some acknowledgement, especially in Little House on the Prairie, like the book where we have Pa and Laura who like sort of explicitly are like, they were here first. Right. Um, and you get that a little bit more in the TV show because it was made in the 70s. And like, I think we'd realize that we need to clean up our act a little bit. The sort of overall historical context of this remains the same, which is that we are celebrating and like romanticizing and idealizing this time that was extremely horrific for many people. And those people's stories have more often than not been erased and silenced um, in favor of these like grander stories that we as white people have shared and shared and shared and talked about and retold and it goes on and on. So I will say that at least in my experience reading The Long Winter, there were fewer sort of like discrete instances where I felt like we were talking about the indigenous folks that were around the Ingalls family. But that doesn't take away from the fact that this entire series is built on some really dangerous, upsetting, and quite frankly, racist 
understandings of our history. I totally agree. I mean, that's really why I wanted to talk to you about it, because I think that it's just, what do we do um, as readers when a series that, you know, was meaningful and shaping in some ways, whether it was shaping of an understanding of a time or an appreciation of a time, turns out to be so deeply flawed. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it's almost, it's corrupt <laughs> It's a, it, in, in so many ways. And even the, what I think is really interesting, because I think every, you said that, so I, t- I agree with everything you said about, about that. And just so many of the books that are set during that time, you know, even my Antonia, are problematic in the same way. But the other thing that I think is really interesting, Ali, now is how I think that this book also glorifies this sort of, how do I put it? Well, Rose Wilder, who's Laura's daughter, was one of the founders of the libertarian movement. And this idea of a sort of suspicion of government, one of the most interesting things to me about the whole series is that right in the long winter, they talk about you know, we're Americans, God made us um, self-reliant, we were born free, and Pa really looks down. There are a few, they're in a little, I think it's a little house in the prairie where they come upon a couple who are sort of in a wrecked prairie, prairie schooner and they're in terrible shape. And Pa's like, well, you know, if you can't take care of yourself, you shouldn't have taken, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be here. But in fact, you know, they hit many hard times and they took government assistance in real life. So, so not only does it is it tremendously problematic in terms of indigenous peoples and westward expansion, but it also is a distortion of reality. And I think it amplifies these, I think, dangerous myths about self-reliance, you know, that people who who can't make it through the long winter don't deserve our, our, our understanding or our help. There's this emphasis on grit, which I think yes. so much to say about with respect to this book specifically and how it works into like our broader understanding of who we are. But of course, in 2021, that conversation about like who we are and who's included in that and who we have habitually excluded from that for so long, that's changed and it's a lot more complicated and it's a lot more nuanced. And I'm glad that we're understanding that it needs to be more nuanced, but that was not the lens through which Laura Ingalls Wilder was writing this book. And it was not the lens through which her daughter, Rose Wilder, was editing them and you know getting them out into the world. So I just think it's really important that we set all this up. And I, I know that it's really hard for, for listeners. I know so many people hold these books so close to their hearts and I get it. Like that is the journey that I have been on with this podcast. I totally understand. And I, I just wanted to call out, I found so many interesting essays and stories about The Long Winter, which I'll link in the show notes for this episode. But I did want to share a couple of excerpts from one essay in particular that came from a newsletter or a blog called Culture Study, and it's called The Call of the Long Winter. And it kind of relates the long winter to this pandemic that we've all been through and the sort of complicated nature of like the times we were living in throughout this pandemic to the complicated nature of the times that the Ingalls family was living in during the winter of 1880 to 1881. So if it's okay with you, I just want to go ahead. That sounds so fascinating. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I can send you the link if you're interested. Oh, there's so many things I wanted to share. Let me pull out some of my favorite ones. Okay. But there also comes an age when you can actually analyze and process what literature is doing instead of just where the plot is going. You can reread these books as adults, at which point, as one recent rereader put it to me, the racism really pops out despite the naturalizing attempts of the narrative. Does that, quote, ruin the pleasure I had as a kid in reading these books? I mean, the narrative itself should be ruined if that's what we choose to call being honest about the literal and figurative erasure of indigenous people. But here's the thing, the pleasure you're remembering was pleasure just in reading, not necessarily the content. What's precious was that time, either spent by yourself and in your mind or with whoever was reading that book to you, not these books. Which I think is really beautiful in this time when we're like talking about cancel culture all the time. And that's a conversation that it like overwhelms me and I don't really like to get into. But I think that that is really well put that like, it's okay to treasure the memories that you have of interacting with this content um, and what it meant to you. And like the fact that maybe it connected to, to your parents or to your grandparents. And like, that's really special, but it's okay to separate that from like, what's actually in it. And it's also okay to be like, the language was beautiful. And I connected with the characters, but also to separate that from like, what's actually happening and what the the prose is actually doing. A few other things I wanted to point out from that piece The similarities to the quarantined present are obvious, if somewhat embarrassing. I have an abundance of comfort, an overwhelming number of things to distract me, so many things to eat, but I've yet to read something that so effectively evokes the feeling of the pandemic. 
The final pages of The Long Winter describe a long-awaited reunion filled with abundance and celebration of hanging out with people for the first time, with doing things they've been unable to do for so many long months. The long winter ended, and so will this pandemic. But it's worth considering now what half-truths and rounded lies will appear in service of a comforting, triumphant narrative in the future. So much about this country is broken. How and when do we stop telling ourselves stories and actually fix it? How good is that? That's so good. And I also realize how not in touch with myself I am because I now realize, of course, that's why I probably was drawn to this book when you when I was asked to pick one for this. Because you're she's so right. That's exactly what it's like. That last those, you know, when they're when they're just they're starving and they're grinding the wheat in the coffee mill and they they're completely cut off from the world because the trains can't come. And then when that Christmas barrel arrives and people show up, it's that's I think that's I that is beautifully put. And then what do you know, what, how do, what do we make of all this? What do we do with these stories? Right. It, it blew my mind a little bit and it did yeah. make me think about someday, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years from now. I just hope that we're, I hope that we're able to tell like the full truth about everything that happened during this time. So now that we have that very important historical context established in this conversation, let's get into the long winter. So as I mentioned before, it's the sixth of nine books in the Little House series. It was published in 1940. It received a Newbery honor in 1941. I didn't realize that four of these books had received Newbery honors. That must have been very early in the world of Newbery, very shortly after it was established. I would think. I don't even know when it was established, but I'm sure you're right. Probably like at this time. Um, so I thought that was kind of a fun fact. And this book takes place between the winter of 1880 and the spring of 1881 when Laura is 14, which is just an interesting age anyway. What was your experience getting back in touch with these characters? What was your first impression of Laura getting to meet her again for this reread? You know, I think that what I'm most struck by is how well Laura, you know, the author, and, you know, whether or not Rose had a heavy hand in this, we don't really know. I think her biographer doesn't really think that Rose was as much of the crafter as some have suggested. But how true the character, I mean, how true they are to each other, how consistent the characters are from the begin, the first book to the end. I don't know if you thought that. And how I, what I, what I always, what I did really appreciate about Laura is that she is very, she's, there's a certain self-awareness about her that is, you know, she knows that she isn't as good as Mary. (laughs) She wishes she was. She knows how she should sew the sheet perfectly because that's how you do it. You know, she has such a sense of what is right, you know, as it's instilled, but then she doesn't quite like it. She doesn't quite want to do it. You know, Pa being such a sexist pig, but still lovable with his fiddle you know, and all that. So there's a certain, you know, there's a, and it, maybe it was the, the sort of essential, the sort of the, I don't want to say goodness, cause that's really not the term, but the, the, there's a really heartfelt quality to, to these characters. You know, the story gave me that same warm feeling, but that just then back to our, our, the caveat of of how it's a sort of, it was a guilt, very guilty pleasure. And I was, it, each time I read it, the, what's wrong with it becomes more, unfortunately, um, stark. What did you think of the characters? Well, speaking of things that are wrong, I just have to say that for me, Pa is the most complicated because I have a hard time separating him from Michael Landon, who I'm oh, sorry, is oh. dead sexy. I know. I can't. He's so beautiful. And he's so dear. And, and, we're all ruined by Mike. All of us, you know, we're all wrecked by Michael Landon in <laughs> Little House in the Prairie show. It's not the same pa, and that's really no, hard. I and I, because I literally just watched the show last week, and um, I grew up watching it, but obviously I was just like, it's pa. And as listeners know, my dad is a girl dad. I have sisters. And so having grown up with the show, I was like, my dad is just like pa. And I think, you know, he shares some some attributes in terms of like being very, just like very solidly good, like a solidly good person who wants to teach his daughters to be solidly good people. And I think I sense that in the pa from the TV show. And I think that that exists in the book pa, but the, the pa in the TV show is just a little less complicated. He's just... He's honest. He is more positive. He's not as overtly racist. So yeah, I think the PA realization, just like when I read the other book for the podcast a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, this is such a letdown, especially because I was watching the show within the same week. It's just like not the same guy. It's true. And then we have to overlay. It's very complicated because we have Michael Landon, who we love. 
and who is perfect. Then we have paw in this, who's just, but then you have the real paw when yeah. you really dig in Carolyn Frazier's book or even in Pioneer and you see just a very different, he probably wasn't a very good farmer. Yeah. You know, he was a little, he seems, you know, I sort of feel like he's like in the modern version, he would just be kind of a guy who just like couldn't keep his act together. He was, you know, he was very, he was restless and he was constantly uprooting the family. I mean, right. he was, he could, you know, certainly he was hardy and, you know, not afraid of hard work, but he's not a character who is, is appealing and comforting, except for his fiddle playing, which I do quite like. Yeah, I do like that too. But it hit me more actually, because I was reading the book and then watching the show at the same time, the way I read him this time around was different. And I think it's because I'm 30 years old now. And uh, I, I sort of, especially as I, as I was watching the pilot episode of the show, I sort of was like thinking about if one of my younger siblings or something was dating somebody like Pa. <laughs> I would be like, this guy needs to get his act together. And that's a very patriarchal attitude because like, of course, in the show, it's like, well, this, it's his responsibility to take care of his family and it's up to him. If he wants to leave us in Wisconsin, then she has to go. And like, that sucks, but bye. No. But in the show, I was like, Ma's family must think that he is a loser. I think they did. Yeah. I think they, I think that, I think they really did. And, you know, there is, there's so many, I mean, that's, that's, Again, I think part of the enduring you asked early, you know, one of the first questions was about, you know, why is the, you know, why do we, why, why does this still have such a fan base among old, you know, people who keep going back to it? And I do think it's because of the complexity and because as you learn more and just as you're saying, then you start to think, wait a minute, <laughs> he was not, you know, he was not a dreamy, you know, adventurer. He was kind of, you know, what was he running away from? Mm -hmm. And, and Alonzo, and then that's, there's a whole other, you know, and then that's a whole other story of of Alonzo and um and what attracts Laura to him to him and so I don't know if um we're not we're not gonna we could endlessly talk about the flaws of Pa and Ma too I have to say yeah well we're gonna talk for four hours we already okay, agreed but that's right we've got a lot of time you can really be very granular in our analysis Taste yourself <laughs> you have plenty of time no so Pa's super complicated Michael Landon can get away with being complicated I don't know if Pa on the page it's hard for me to give him quite as much uh, latitude but I I think Laura really is pretty timeless as a character which I think is one of the reasons that these do endure and I think it, she as a character is probably one of the reasons that people have such a hard time letting go of this um, and distancing themselves because there's just something about her that I think appeals to everyone. She's such a middle child in all the stereotypical ways. Uh, she, like you said, she wants to be as sort of virtuous and good and considerate and kind and sweet as Mary. She's also trying to be like more grown up than Carrie, her younger sister, um, which is such a hard place to be. And she's so real. And I think one of the things that I was really interested in in this book was that I feel like there was some exploration of her mental health a little bit in this book. And um, mental health is also something I think a lot of us have developed a different vocabulary around over the last year or so. But Laura has some social anxiety, which I thought was really interesting because the big transition in this book is that anticipating the terrible winter, the Ingalls family moves from their, they describe it as like the shanty, like out on the claim because it's not insulated, they can't stay warm. And they're also so far from town that if there's snow, they have absolutely zero access to resources. They can't get to the train, jokes on them because the train's going to stop coming. So they decide to move to Pa's store, which is in the town. I think there are like 70 or 80 people, which is so fascinating to think about in itself. Right. right. Yeah. Laura is having a lot of trouble thinking about being around other people, um, which is something that just struck me because I, again, it's like, it's very reflective of where we are right now. Like everybody's talking now, I think about how like for the last year, so many people have been distancing and isolating and not seeing others, which is safe. But what happens when people have to start to reintegrate? Like what happens when you have to start seeing others? And I've always had like a little bit of social anxiety anyway. So I relate to Laura on that point. But the fact that she was like anticipating going to school and she knew it was something that she should be excited about, but she like didn't really want to be with other kids and she doesn't really know how to interact with other kids. Like I thought that was fascinating. And then even later in the book, when they're really in the thick of the winter, 
the author never comes out and says it explicitly, but it felt to me like she was experiencing some depression, like at least some seasonal depression, like the seasonal affective disorder. I think that that she that that last portion of the book where they are what it is just bleak and they don't know if the food is gonna, you know, where Alonzo's gone to the to the to hopefully bring back some some wheat, but they are they're starving, they're freezing cold, they're it's dark. And there's no, it's very, it is really analogous to this. You know, there was no, it was, there was some thin, there was thin hope and they were relying on each other and their own, and they were really required to be drawing from their own inner strength. And at a certain point, if that is not, how does that regenerate? I mean, I think you're right. I think it, it, it really, I think it, it is, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a deeply depressive environment. I hadn't thought of that either, Allie. It made me really sad, but I also, like, we're just now coming out of winter as you and I are talking, and I don't know about you, but the winter layered on top of everything that we're managing with COVID-19, everything was so heavy, Um, and it still is. We're still working our way out of everything that's going on in the world, but I just related to her so much, and I, I thought that what was so fascinating was, like, how little they had to do, which the blog or the um sort of newsletter that I referenced earlier, that author references like sort of, you know, at least we have stuff to do now, which is great and a privilege. But in reading this book, like if I have one complaint, it was just like, it was like, oh my gosh, there's so many descriptions of chores, but that's because that's all they were doing. So I was like, I'm complaining because I'm bored about reading about all of the chores that they're doing, but they they probably were complaining because they actually had to do all of the chores. That's all that they could do. And those chores had to be done so they could survive. No, I think that they, you know, I think winter, because I was also thinking about Game of Thrones and winter is, you know, the role that winter plays. And I think for us, you know, back in November, we kept hearing it's going to be a hard, long winter. It's going to be a hard, long winter. And that's, of course, what they, you know, when when they meet, you know, when the muskrat starts to behave strangely. And then Pa has his encounter, of course, is in the store. Um, and he's warned that, you know, this could be a very hard winter. And he takes that seriously. And he understands, I think we are so used to being able to insulate ourselves, not only physically, but to your point, kind of psychically through our diversions. But the idea of just being truly trapped. Um, and I think that there, and we experience, I mean, to some extent, and, and some of us less than others, there was a certain, you could, you could some, you could much more relate to that now. I could relate to that much more clearly now than I could um, when I first read this with this book. It, this, it seemed so exotic, but the idea of just occupying yourself with the daily tasks relating to you know your household. Well, it helps you feel normal. Like, and I think especially for Ma, like Ma is trying to create a sense of normalcy for her family, and she and Pa have an interesting like interplay throughout this whole book. But as I was reading, I was like. I found myself getting a little bit annoyed because I was like, it seems to me that all of these, all these women do is sit around and like wait for Pa to go places and come back, go places and come back. Like we're sitting at the window and we're watching him do different things. And I was sort of on my feminist high horse about that, which I'm fine with. But then when I really thought about it, I was like, this is actually the only thing that they have to do. Like if they're not doing chores or attempting to do schoolwork, which they're having a hard time doing because they can't see or their resources aren't up to par or they've already done all these lessons or there's nobody to teach them. Like the only thing that changes in their day-to-day routine is like if Pa has left to try to dig out the train or to try to get supplies or to try to go hunting. So as much as I in 2021 was like, girls, like find something else to do. Pa's going to be back. First of all, there's a chance Pa wasn't going to be back. So this was a scary situation for them. And this was at least giving them something else to think about. It's true. And, you know, I have read so many of these memoirs, as I told you, these, you know, these memoirs, which I can send you. Some of them are just, I I mean, they're, and the other thing that I think is really striking about the long winter and the, the Ingalls family is that there was always tidiness and order. And that was not to be taken for granted because in many of the memoirs I've read, it was, there was a filth and it was chaotic and slatternly. Like if your ma didn't like, have her act together and insist on cleanliness. And, you know, she's always sweeping the floors and then whitewashing things and cleaning out and the roots, everything is immaculate in this, in this household, that everyone's presentable, even in dire circumstances, then how quickly things can turn. And I think that's the other thing of this sort of this, her maintenance of order as the only, I think, buffer between <laughs> true despair and chaos 
and sort of this modicum of functionality like that. It's the, the margin was so thin. It would take nothing to just plunge into squalor and depravity and, you know, in your isolation there. Was it in this one? Cause I also reread, I was also reading, re, I also reread Little House on the Prairie and now I'm, I'm confusing them, but there's this one scene where remember, I think Pa can't go out. So he, he, he um, weaves a rush chair for Ma. Is this ringing a bell? I think it might be a little house on the prairie, but I'm still here for it. And so Ma, and essentially, so Pa's like, I'm bored. Like, you know, I can't go out. It's stormy. So I'm just going to, so he has all these rushes and he, he weaves Ma a chair and she sits down and it's clear that she has not sat down in several years. Like she has not had a chair where she's like, oh my God, Charles. It's like like she's going to like an incredible spa to just sit (laughs) in this probably super uncomfortable chair. She's probably standing all the time, maybe perching at the edge of a bed. She's probably not even sitting at mealtimes. You know, she's serving. So anyway, all these details, I think that's another thing maybe you and I, you know, this, I think that she does so beautifully in this book is it's really, it's so fine brushstroke. Every sentence is so descriptive, whether it's the nature writing, I think you could do an entire, you know, just sort of discussion about her ability to evoke the seasons and the, you know, the animals and the, the haymaking, all of that. And then, you know, the brutality of the winter how the sensory details there. Well, I I just have to say, Ma jumped off the page so much for me in this book. I don't really know why. I think her piousness is really interesting to me in this book, like her religiosity. Like she talks so much about God in this book, which I guess if you are a person of faith and you have nothing else to lean on in this very terrible time, it should come as no surprise that that's something that you might talk about more. Um, You're saying a lot of prayers, you're counting your blessings, all of those things. I think um, I'm also always reminded when I read a book set in this time period, making assumptions that are probably true, but might not be entirely true. I'm always reminded of like how young these parents are, because at this time in history, you have to assume that like people are getting married at 19, 20, 21, they're starting to have children around the same age, Charles and Carolyn, Caroline, they, they can't be older than like 35 years old. They're your age, Allie. I mean, I, they might I be mean, younger. I, I, am, I, I didn't look into this, but I would even think they might've gotten married even younger, you yeah. know, 18, 17, 18. And you have, so you're so right about that. Of course, people didn't live, you know, back then, I think your lifespan was probably maybe if you, you know, I think 50 was considered like a pretty good run. Yeah. But but it's, it's, yeah, it's true. And she does jump off the page and she's, you know, I think that's another thing that it, that at different times in life, at different phases in life, people, maybe I first discovered these books, you know, I was older and I had three of my four children already. So I was sort of amazed by her composure and again, her ability to maintain order. And she always, she has a state, she has a statement that she says in a couple of the books, which is all's well that ends well. Like the most horrible thing can happen in the whole world. Like you get, they get malaria in one of them and they almost die. And there's, you know, it's just like, oh, it's well, it's well, we're just not going to dwell. And I'm so not like that. You know, I really want to like really plunge into, (laughs) review what happened in great detail. The full full analysis. I can't, right. You have, it can't rest until you've analyzed the whole thing. I'm very in touch with that feeling, but we get to see Ma snap at the end of the book, which I love. whole book she's like so optimistic pa is actually kind of getting frustrated more and because i just watched the show i you know sort of the most recent memory i had was of ma being really annoyed because pa is dragging her across the country away from her family and she's like can we just settle somewhere please and he's like no it's not my dream yet but in this book it's kind of the opposite in that pa he's the one who's like, no, this winter's bad. Like, I know it's going to be bad. It's going to keep getting worse. I don't have high hopes. We have to buckle down and like really be careful. And Ma is just like, I, it's going to be fine. All's well that ends well kind of attitude. And then at the end, she kind of snaps, which I loved to see. And of course, she pretty quickly regains her composure because she's Carolyn Angles. But it was nice to see her have a moment and be like, I can't handle this anymore. And I think everybody has had that moment over the last 12 months. It's true. And I think, you know, again, the sort of when you go character by character and even, you know, because at the end they have this Christmas barrel and who is it? Reverend. I, it was Reverend. Um, who was his name? Who sent the barrel? I'm looking here. Re- Reverend Alden. 
you know, he, you know, he was this sort of hero. He sends this, and it was just that you, you can just imagine you opening the barrel and all the incredible, the delicious things. But he's also not such a good guy. I don't know if you came across him in your research. I didn't. But even the even the secondary characters do not stand up to scrutiny. He became an Indian agent. You know, he was kind of drum out of town. He was not. You know, he he was sort of a. Is he kind of in the end was sort of like a kind of a shabby um, Tammany Hall kind of character. You know, he had his wife on the payroll when he was working for the Indian service. So I think that that's at all times when I'm reading this, it's this juxtaposition of this sort of myth, this, it's almost, you know, the mythology of it and the beauty of the writing. And then the very right below the veneer, the reality of who these people were and what they stood for. Yeah, it was rough and tumble. It was rough and tumble and the people were rough around the edges, some more than others, some worse than rough around the edges. And I think I'm actually very interested in some of the other reading that you've been doing about this era because I'm I'm curious. And once I'm done with grad school, my dream is that I'm going to take like, not done with grad school, when I'm done with this semester, I want to take like two to three weeks off. It's not going to happen. But in my dream, I want to take two or three weeks off and do nothing but like watch TV and read all the books that I wanted to read since I started grad school. So I'll have to add some of those to my list. We'll have to talk. That sounds super dreamy. Yeah, no, there's, I can, I can, I will give you, they're, they're all interesting. And the other thing is that there's a sameness, of course, because of the limit, you know, the limiting factors of the environment, you know, the, you were farming, you were building your sod house, but also the, the vast, you know, some women really did go mad. I don't know if you saw, there was a movie, um, a terrible movie, I think it was Hillary Swank, one of the grimmest movies a few years ago about, you know, the sort of madness that, that happened to women out in the prairie, you would be driven mad by the wind, the sound of the wind and the loneliness and the pressures. And I think going back to Pa and his panic, did you wonder this? I sort of, you know, back to your like 2000, you know, 2021 assessment of him as a boyfriend or, you know, <laughs> my little sister's boyfriend, whether or not I, I wanted it. Like, oh no, like, oh crap. I better like, get ready for the winter like because he is the whole the whole reason they're here right is because of him i mean it's all because of him so he better like get that what does he call them like that he better get all those geese ready for the winter he better be able to and you can just i do think that she does i don't know maybe i'm projecting this but his when he fails you know when he comes back empty-handed i do think that that's you know that that resonates you know i think that you feel this not just a sense of his um, responsive failure of, you know, to deliver, but this shame. I think it's, there's a shame that he can't do what he's supposed to do. Well, I think the, the sort of the pressures of taking care of a family were fundamentally so different in this time period than anything that we can be familiar with now. Like if my husband screws up something in his role as quote, taking care of the family, which is not like a lens through which I, look at my marriage, but I'm just trying to create some equivalence here. Um, like the worst that happens is like, I, I, I don't know, like we can't put any money in savings that month. And this is of course all like, we don't have any children, right. we rent, you know, it's different, but just trying to make a point here. If Pa messes up and he lets his wife down, the whole family could literally die. No, and it's, it's really true. And I think what's also striking, and this comes out, because I wrote about, I wrote about, um, the, I've read, I've, I've explored this book through a variety of lenses. You know, there was the first read, then I read, I wrote about the children's blizzard, which is this iconic blizzard that happened in 1888. And that's right where they were, right in, you know, it, it smack center of, you know, the Dakotas and down. And I was really there's a there's a tremendous amount of accuracy. You know, the meteorology in this book is very accurate. And one of the things that really comes out is not only are you you're taking care of your family, and if you fail, your family could starve. But as you see in this book, the entire you, you can't depend on the community to help you because they don't have anything either. And that's the the margin is that slim. So if your crops fail, everyone everyone is subjected to the same weather factors and people simply don't have the extra food to share with you. So that's, that's, that's the other, so you, and you could also, so if you and your husband decide you didn't want to work all month, you could always like, you could come here to my house and I would, you know, give you dinner, you, could stay with us, you know, but, yeah. but they don't, that was, that's, I think another really, a haunting thing about those those communities and how many of the communities never really coalesced um, and became functional, intertwined, truly communities that 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 had the ability to 
respond to something, a setback in a really resilient way because everyone was just completely exposed. Yeah, everybody's walking very thin yeah. line of survival. We we can't have this conversation without talking about Almanzo Wilder. I think that's how his name is pronounced. Is it Al- Almanzo? Almanzo. There's oh, an M in there. I don't know, but I I have to say I don't know if you're familiar with the book Ducks Newburyport. It's that it's like a it's a, like 1,100 pages. It won. It was nominated for the Booker. I'm reading it. I'm doing like five pages a night. What is it? Read tell me. It's called Ducks Newburyport. It's by Lucy Elman. Listeners, I'll include a link in the show notes. Although if you follow me on social media, you've seen my thoughts on this. So I read five pages of it a night and it's like my project for 2021. And it's just mm. stream of consciousness. It's about this woman who's like living her life in Ohio. It's essentially, you'll appreciate this as a writer. It's like a lot of nouns, which I love. It's just like all the nouns that she's observing. But she, as part of her stream of consciousness, she talks quite a bit about Little House on the Prairie. And within the first few pages of Ducks Newburyport, she's referencing Almanzo Wilder and like <laughs> things that he does out on the prairie. So I, I was laughing about that because every like, you know, 20 or 30 pages, we'll get another mention of Almanzo Wilder. And because I don't know that I read the whole Little House series when I was a kid, I don't, I don't have like a lot of vivid memories of Laura meeting Almanzo and like what kind of character he was. So this was like my first super clear encounter with him. And he seems like a great guy. He's kind of dreamy. I think he, he's sort of a mensch, Almanzo. Yes. Yes. And I, the other thing, and I, I don't, because I, Farmer Boy is about his growing up in upstate New York. Right. And that's a whole other fabulous thing. You could just spend hours reading and rereading his mom's root cellar. You know, he comes from this big family and he's, you know, growing up in this orchard and the, the, it's such, I mean, talk about romanticization. I don't know what was really going on there. And I don't, I don't really know. I mean, they, they had a hard time. They had their, they had very hard times. He had a stroke. Didn't he quite young? If I, if I'm recalling, they had a lot of, you know, they, they certainly had a lot of hardship even after they left the, the will, the wilds. Yeah. But in this book, he's like all the things that I feel like Pa could be or all the things that maybe I thought Pa was when I was a kid. Yeah. And I, I feel like that might kind of be who this guy is. He he really genuinely is a hard worker. Like he set out to, to claim his land as problematic as that is. I'm not going to pretend that it's not. But in the context of this history and the decisions that he made, he at least is approaching it with like a really impressive work ethic. He seems to have a plan. He wants to take care of other people. He's bending the rules a little bit. He's not technically old enough to to claim his land, but he's going to. And he realizes that the government doesn't really care. And so he's just going to take the opportunity. And then he is the one who sets out, even though he doesn't need the food, like he's good. He's fine. But he realizes that this whole town at the end of the long winter they have nothing. Everybody's starving. And he and his little friend, Cap Garland, his little pal, I feel like he's like his sidekick. They trek 20 miles to find wheat to feed the town. He's, He's the only one who does it. And he, like I said, he doesn't need to. So he is the hero. We are not seeing a romance blooming between the two of them yet, but it, it, we're definitely seeing like the groundwork being laid. I agree with you completely. And there's some very, you know, he is, he's always, I think he comes off in all of the books because when Laura is a school teacher and she's very miserable, he, he's, he's someone who, who really always puts himself out. He's, he's very selfless. Whereas Pa, it's even, even in the worshiping of Pa, there is this, I don't think she, you know, his, it's all about his dream and his instinct and his, you know, what, what he thinks, um, you know, what he thinks they should be doing. And also, of course, with Almanzo, he didn't, he, of course, he's by him, he's by himself. So if he, something goes wrong, he's not taking his whole family down. Yeah, I really enjoyed him. It made me want to read more of the the books that are later in the series to see how their relationship plays out. But as we get closer to the end of our hour, I mean, I know we're going to keep talking for another three hours separately. I'd love to know what some of your favorite moments of the book were, because I know you mentioned that you had noted them. And I'd love to hear about those passages or those scenes that brought you a little extra happiness. Well, you know, I think when I'm, you know, because I write so much about these, you know, natural, you know, natural disasters or, and I'm, I was even now, you know, I've read so much now about blizzards because, you know, I wrote this children's blizzard book. It was a few books ago. And 
I, I think that the descriptions of, of nature in her books are among the very finest. I mean, there's a wonderful even description in um, Little, House in the, um, Little House in the Big Woods where she describes, remember, she says something like, if you could walk for, you know, you could walk for a month in any direction and all you would see is trees, which is true. And what a wonderful way of describing that to a child. And I do think that that's the remarkable thing too about, about the books is that they have a sophistication of language, but they are so resonant and relatable to even a young reader. So the ways that she describes um, you know, the wonder, you know, the sort of the wonder of, um, I, I just love this one little paragraph. It comes after, after she's describing the, the cold and the frost. And then she says, then the sun peeped over the edge of the prairie and the whole world glittered. Every tiniest thing glittered rosy toward the sun and pale blue toward the sky. And all along, every blade of grass ran rainbow sparkles. <laughs> I mean, like who can... It's, I mean, and that's like, she has such a, I said this earlier, but her fine, her patience and her fine brushstroke. And for some, this is the other thing, Allie, that I think is really, that strikes me. And I actually would have to like, I'm going to talk to some of my teacher friends, because I am curious to see if this really does, I write for a lot of reluctant readers and struggling readers. And I am wondering whether this would really hold the, I think it probably would, but because the descriptions are, are kind of verbose, you know, she'll, she'll go into, you know, an entire paragraph about a little pumpkin, but, um, but there, but I find them interesting and effervescent, even just that, you know, the idea of every blade of grass ran rainbow sparkles, you know, how could you resist that? Those are my favorite things, um, you know, throughout were just these beautiful, these descriptions, these, it was really all about the descriptions for me. What about you? I loved all of the the descriptions of the food. And I think it's obvious that she was trying to, to sort of show readers the importance of food because the Ingalls family is not getting much of it. But just in the specific ways that she was talking about, like the brown bread and the bread that sometimes had butter and sometimes didn't have butter. And there was like a, a green pumpkin pie and... Um, like the different kinds of meat that they would very occasionally get. And like, it's so interesting because when I, we, uh, when I covered the first Little House book, Little House on the Prairie, three years ago, one of my friends was on and she at the time was, she was a teacher and she developed curriculum. And so we were talking about it from that perspective. And we were joking about how, like, for some reason, there are these words from Little House on the Prairie that we've kind of always been obsessed with. And we think it's because of these books, one of them being molasses, like we're fascinated by molasses and the other one being muslin. Like we both remembered the muslin dresses. And it's funny, it's just occurring to me now that like, because we were talking on that episode about like, why, like, why, why did we think about these things so much? And I'm like, maybe it's because of these books. She repeated these words over and over. It's not like we read the word muslin one time and we were like, oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to remember it until I'm 30. It's because throughout this whole series, these little details work their way in over and over and over. And we don't know what those things are. And so we're fascinated by them. And so even in this book, I think I was attuned to those moments, like the domestic moments that are just like so different from our domestic lives now. And how those words, for some reason, have still like buried themselves in my brain. I think the last thing that I would ask you is if you think this is a crazy, a crazy thought, you know, as I think another thing many of us have explored during the pandemic is mindfulness. And like I've been reading a lot of Pima Chodron and these, you know, Sharon Salzberg, these sort of meditation teachers. And there is something very meditative mm. in the life of, and, you know, and in the, in the moment. And even you were saying about the food, the idea of everything is done, you know, if you're sewing it stitch by stitch by stitch, you're only thinking about sewing that sheet the right way. And if Ma's making a pie with a little bit, you know, with the green pumpkin in it, we don't know if it's going to be delicious, but it's going to be done just right. Mm-hmm. We don't know. And she says, we don't know if it's how it's going to taste until it's done, but she still does it perfectly. And I think maybe there is something about that that has a sort of timeless appeal is that she, they're rituals, but there's also a great respect, a reverence for just the day to day, the moments that build your day. It almost reminds me of, of people's fascination with um, like day in the life vlogs in 2021. Like, why are they interesting? They're not. It's just people 
doing the same boring things that you do, but it's very relaxing. Like it's almost more relaxing the more boring the person's life is. (laughs) I'm going to have to check those out. It's very relaxing, very relaxing. So on the whole, Lauren, how do you think that this rereading experience sort of fits into the other moments that you've encountered this book? I know you didn't read it when you were a kid, so we can't compare it to your childhood experience, but having read this a progression of times, how did this experience and and even our discussion around it kind of hold up or compare to those other reading experiences? I think that the more times I read it, and as you started this discussion with, the more problematic it becomes. And the more I do question, because there's only, you know, people will say, well, there's only that, you know, couple of lines. Is it really that bad? Well, yes, it is. Um, It's terrible. And then most important that, and the most um, heartbreaking really is the realization that you so, I think you put it very eloquently, um, is that the entire, the entire series is built on a foundation of a terrible crime in our history that is utterly unresolved, you know, that, that we haven't even begun to really explore properly um, as, as a society. So I think that's what I was really, it, this, it was this strange pivoting between, oh, that beautiful description and, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible and tragic. And that Rose Wilder sounds very crazy, you know? So I think that that's, um, but that's okay. And I think what you also said is, you know, it's okay to, I think, be willing to, um, as a reader, countenance all of the different cross currents and being uncomfortable and, and um, expecting being willing to relinquish your affection for a book that you loved at one time, because now you realize that so much about it isn't, is not, not acceptable. Yes. Well, I appreciate you digging into the discomfort with me. Um, Other than the long winter, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? It it can relate to, to what we've been talking about. It can be totally different. Anything that you just thought was especially fantastic. Well, the book that I recently just read and loved was Shuggy Bane which was very hard and, um, as they say, searing. But in some ways, you could say that there's a certain similarity in that he does such an incredible job of those tiny details of day-to-day life. And, you know, he's, he's it's not the prairie, it's, you know, it's, is it Glasgow? Is it, I'm, I'm, I haven't read it yet, but it's very grim. And, um, but it's, it's, so I would, I recommend that. More than anything, and then I'm just spending all of my time right now in writing my new I Survive book, which is set in 1900 in Galveston. So in in my brain, that's really where I am. Like I'm going to go out for a buggy ride after this, and maybe drive in a motor car later. <laughs> you have a very busy schedule. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to. I was wondering if you would share a little bit more about some of your recent projects. I know your latest I Survived came out in February and you have so many things in the works. So I'd love if you could share a little bit more. We have so many teachers in the SSR community and listeners, if you're not aware of Lauren's work, you definitely should be. So I'd love if you could share. Well, I'm just, I'm always working on one of my I Survive books. This is the 21st in the series and kind of shockingly, in addition to writing the novels, which, you know, are historical fiction and I have to do a lot of research for, and they're quite grueling to write. I have the delightful experience of watching my books as more of a cheerleader and an admirer be turned into graphic novels by a team that includes my incredible editor, Katie Weir, and a, a writer, a graphic novel scriptwriter named Georgia Ball, who translates my stories into these beautiful lyrical books. And then these teams of artists that are that are turning the stories into gorgeous graphic novels. So it's just, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful thing to watch. And the last one was the Nazi invasion. The newest one is gonna be September 11th, which we're just finishing up now. Well, thank you for sharing. It must be a very wild experience, like an interesting collaboration and like seeding a little bit of control, but also like watching it take on a whole other life of its own. And I'll be sure to include links to some of your most recent titles in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to The Long Winter, along with a link to Lauren's book recommendation, along with links to all of the cool resources that I found about this book. Lauren, it really has been such a joy talking with you. I so appreciate your time. We're going to circle back for our like four hour chat at another I have no doubt that we could fill that time. Um, And I just really appreciate you spending this hour with me. Thanks, Allie. It was a complete delight. Bye. 
SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>